This is a Rooster Teeth production. November 1913. One of the deadliest storms in history sweeps through the Great Lakes. In her wake, some ships are badly damaged, some are destroyed, and some are never seen again. Presumably, that's well. One I mean, of the yeah, we don't know never because yeah. in two years maybe something comes up, or maybe when maybe they all, were fine. In five years, when the Great Lakes are dried out, mm-hmm. all dried up, and mm-hmm. it's a desert, mm-hmm. then maybe perhaps mm-hmm. maybe we'll find them. But mm-hmm. that's right. Or maybe a say. French farmer and his brother found them thirty years ago. Uh, there is something similar to that in this about a doctor who just kind of happens upon like multiple shipwrecks, but it's, we'll get into that. It's yeah. always something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. Ahoy and welcome aboard Ship Hits the Fan, a podcast about some of history's most notable uh-ohs and whoopsies on the high seas and lakes. Uh, more and more frequently Great Lakes. Yeah, it's a freshwater season. I'm I'm a, a man of the lakes. You are, yeah. Say. You're uh, a man of 10,000 lakes, which you've told me there's more. Superior being one of them, I would think. Superior. Now, Lake Superior. Erie. We're talking... Michigan. Minnesota. Wisconsin. What? These are lakes. Michigan. What? Lake the Wisconsin? It's the, I'm sorry, I'm giving some scale. <sighs> okay. You know what? Why don't you just talk? That'll be the intro today, because I didn't write one. Okay. Just tell us about your experience as a man of the lakes. Well, Lake Superior, we've talked about it many times, but if you've never seen a Great Lake, well, I mean any Great Lake, not just Lake Superior. Yeah. If you've never seen a Great Lake in the midst of a storm, it's hard to imagine how uh, upsetting and shocking it is. The turmoil. The turmoil, exactly, because there's something about, like, you see an ocean in turmoil, there still seems to be some kind of order to it. There's a rhythm. And yeah. It's, and the movement yeah. is very natural in the yes. ocean. Yeah, even even in, like, scary, an insane, definitely. and yes, there's rogue waves in the lake. Yeah, sure, Of course we know waves, about rogue waves. Actually, of course they do. Something about a lake doing that just feels bad. I've not seen it. It's it's. I mean, I've, I remember the crazy. first time I saw one of the Great Lakes from, it's it, from one wild, of the banks. Right? And it's yeah. I, I'm not even joking. The first thing I said, you said, "Huh? Like, this is a lake." I was in Chicago, and I said, "Wow, that's great." And then <laughs> yeah. I went, "Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> so, like, tell us, tell us a little bit about the lakes, man. Oh, well, that's all I had. They're cool. That's it. That's all I wanted to say. You oh, you wanted more? Yeah, a little. Yeah, sure. I can carry the sh- the show on my back for a little while longer. I mean, it's a you episode. For another couple so you episodes, should, you should carry it a little bit. <laughs> I guess I mean, that is my role. Yeah. Today. <laughs> that is your job yeah, yeah. today. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Uh, I don't know. I think gonna... I think if you have not been to the Great Lakes, and we've again, this is old territory. I feel like we've said this a thousand times. I know, I know, but, but we gotta keep saying it. It's hard to imagine this kind of distress and turmoil on a lake, mm-hmm. but this is not really a lake. It's like a freshwater sea. Yes. More than anything. And, yeah, they're brutal and unpredictable, as you will find out again today. Shall I get into it? Then? I would love it if okay. you got into Thank it. Thank you. You're welcome. This is, our, this is the last episode of this season, by the way. Really? Yeah. This is the finale. For whatever that means. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not 100% on that season, the seasonal aspects. Yeah, we just kind of keep track him. Yeah. Some of them are more silly than others. Yeah, 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 yeah. In November of 1913, a storm swept across the Northeast, burying whole cities in snow and destroying ships all across the Great Lakes. All of the lakes. We're talking all the lakes. Okay, Erie, Boom. Michigan, Boom. Superior, Boom. Ontario, Boom. Huron. Huron, okay, yeah. thank you. I actually don't know that we cover every one of the lakes in no, this, but a, 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 large, a, it, yeah. a large number of them. 
So while these storms were not unusual for the Great Lakes during this time of the year, this one was unique for being the deadliest and most destructive natural disaster to ever hit the Great Lakes. Well, surely we're due for another one soon, given the way the, uh, the world works now. Right. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers hey, crossed. Yeah. Be great for the show. Bad for people, the people, but Ooh, good for the show. We could just sacrifice some empty ships. Not as good. Push Not as off. good. I don't know. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll talk. When the clouds lifted, the storm had left millions of dollars of damage in its wake, over 30 ships damaged or completely destroyed, and most tragically, more than 250 people dead. In the years following, the storm would be called the Big Blow, the Freshwater Fury, and even the White Hurricane. The White Hurricane sounds like a white basketball player. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know? Where everyone's like, damn, he's pretty good for a white guy. <laughs> the White Hurricane. Yeah, yeah. Takes the court. According to modern weather experts, the Great Lakes themselves contribute to the formation of these types of storm systems. The lakes are comparatively warm, considering that they are far north of the equator. That's true. Very far north of the equator. Which, look, I've tried to dip in Lake Superior. It's cold as hell. Yeah. But you run hot. That might be it. That might be it. <laughs> Ooh, ah! <laughs> For many years, it has been observed that as cold, dry air moves south from Canada and warm, moist air moves up from the Gulf of Mexico, the collision of these air masses creates large, moving storm systems in the center of the North American continent. Now here's, may I? Yeah. This is going to be controversial. Okay. I think the solution here is the U.S., we remove it and place it in the center of the sea. Okay. Of the Pacific. Okay. Or Atlantic, I suppose, either way. Because well, it seems like why? the problem, it's coming down from Canada and up from Mexico, and then they meet in, a, in, the, you, in the United States. Are you saying that... We move the people or we move the entire land mass? <laughs> no, the people the are fine. States. The the land mass Got needs it. to get out. And Why move. don't we just move everyone from the Midwest onto the Pacific trash island? This is not just a Midwest problem. The Great Lakes are also on the East Coast. I mean, no. not the coast I mean, Not the coast, part, yeah, but, but it's the easterly portion of the Midwest. I think. No, New York isn't the east, is easterly Midwest. Yeah, but it's the west side of New York. It's still New York. Okay. Yeah, what are you, know, you talking about? Just because it's the same. It's a, the states are wide. It's still, it doesn't make it the Midwest. You think New York, is, okay. I think out there by the I think you're going to get a lot Lakes, of pushback from our friends Pens in Albany. I don't think our that friends New York in Buffalo, is the, the wonderful Midwest, people of Buffalo. But I think Buffalo is verging on the Midwest. What is the Midwest? Just not the East Coast? Just not the, the shoreline then? It can't be divided by state lines. It's not so simple. So as, anything fine, that's fine. not on the shore is the Midwest. That's not what I'm saying. Does that go for the West Coast too? Anything not, not along the ocean? Obviously, there's a. You know what? I don't want to do this. You're, okay. You're 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 enjoying this far too much. I'm just saying that we should not follow the distinction set by people drawing arbitrary lines on a map. There are parts of New York, and parts of Pennsylvania uh -huh. that are Midwestern. Wrong. Completely not wrong. wrong. Totally incorrect. They're not classified as the Midwest. No, but they. You are saying that the 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 the, the lake weather systems affect those places. I know about lake effect snow. Okay, uh -huh, okay. and it's a westerly portion of the state. Yeah. So if you're wrapping a bubble, okay, we'll call it the Midwest, but with a lowercase yeah. M and W. All right, it's okay. not the Midwest, but it's Midwest. And now that I see that you're red, uh, and, I'm furious. And heated. Yeah, we'll move on. These, I dipped my toe uh, <laughs> in Lake Superior right now. It feels That's so all I cold. Wanted. That's all I wanted to do. You're a monster. These storm <laughs> systems often move up and over the Great Lakes, where the air mass takes on heat from the water below. As we said, this water is not hot, but it is noticeable degrees warmer than the air passing above it, and that is enough. 
<laughs> to get it going. <laughs> uh, sort of like me saying that New York is not the Midwest was enough, enough to, get to get you in, going, into I, a rage, <laughs> a fury. After you had, never mind. You know what? It doesn't matter. There you go. Thank you for conceding. I'm not conceding. I'm putting up with you. I continue. <laughs> this temperature differential God. causes the air to spin, creating cyclonic storm systems, much like a hurricane or a tornado. Okay. Cyclonic? I don't know. That should be a an NBA team that the White the Hurricane cyclonic. plays for. Is yeah. A, yeah, like the Albuquerque Cyclonic. Yeah. So this happens almost every year. In fact, many locals refer to the November wind storms as a November gale or cooler a November witch. And people out, you know, weather really like it's it's worse to live in conditions like that, but it does kind of make you into like it hardens uh, the it people. It hardens you, yeah. Yeah. These storms are notorious for causing excessive rain or even snow, and they often produce large waves in the lake and huge gusts of wind. Even when the storms have concluded on the shore, they can still remain present over the lakes for days at a time. And on the lakes, these storms become even deadlier than they are on land. What? Yeah, perhaps because man was not meant to be on the water. No, I don't think man was meant to come out of our caves. Yeah, not meant to do much, really. (laughs) No. Waves can reach heights dwarfing even some ocean waves. Plus, the shores of the lakes are mostly rocky, and therefore, they reflect waves instead of absorbing them. Mm, Sort of like a... I made a rubber and everything you say to me bounces it's off. Exactly the same principle, yes. <laughs> and I know you I know I know you are, but what am I scenario? Yeah. And uh, maybe like I'm a mirror. One of those. Uh no, not that one. It's less used. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's an old code, but something in Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> this leads to large waves in much quicker succession than ships experience in the open sea. Since the Matafa storm of nineteen oh five that sank twenty seven wooden boats, barges, canoes, and docks. There have been 25 storms classified as killer storms on the lakes. This includes the one in 1975 that sank friend of the show, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. (laughs) Friend of the show, Edmund (laughs) Edmund Fitzgerald. So, what happened in 1913 that made this November witch so deadly? A couple things. Most witches are October October witches. First of all, magic. Yeah, Obviously magic is a big part. magic is a huge factor. Old we world magic. We don't actually talk about a lot the effects magic has on uh, water systems. Yeah, the storm was first noticed on November sixth, nineteen thirteen. It was observed to be traveling on the western side of Lake Superior, headed toward northern Lake Michigan. The Detroit News predicted the winds would be quote moderate to brisk. Oh, a kind witch. Yeah, and here begin the problems. In nineteen thirteen, we had little ability to accurately predict the weather let alone estimate the severity of an inclement weather system. Mm -hmm. Today, obviously, we have satellites and tracking systems that observe wind patterns. We have instruments to measure changes of pressure in the air and tons of historical data we can retrieve in seconds. Yeah, and Twister has been made. And we've all seen Twister. We've all seen Twister. So we kind of know what's going on. Did Carrie Elwes die in Twister? Yes, because he's a bad guy, right? He's a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. then he definitely died. Yeah, of course. Okay. While our meteorologists sometimes still get it wrong, much to the chagrin of uh, uncles, <laughs> uh, mostly uncles, I guess, right? It, you who, know, kind who of complains the, about meteorologists. Guy, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of people that work in like bureaucratic, sort of like public-facing jobs. So male like, neighbors, male neighbors, who you don't yeah, know very well. Maybe you're kind of like chatting it up with the post uh, postal yes. worker. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Or maybe it's someone who's cutting your hair. This yeah. weather we've been having. I mean, okay, anyway, the point is... I feel like I could uh, be a meteorologist if they get it wrong half the time. Like, give me the job. As as much as your neighbor might 
be mad at the meteorologist. They're a lot closer than the people of 1913 could ever hope to be. God, imagine being a neighbor in 1913. (sighs) Tell me about it. In 1913, they did have historical data and some wind-sensitive instruments, but... And old man Gallagher's knee. That was more of what it was, I think, yeah. The trick knee tingling is how you knew. Storm coming. Yeah, yeah, mostly just a guy looking up and saying, "Mm mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> Storm My, coming. Mighty cloudy. Yeah. Mighty cloudy. Uh, the November witch. Yeah. So having noted that it was indeed kind of windy, <laughs> the forecaster for the Detroit News settled on moderate to brisk and sent it to print. They added an additional note that there may be rain over the next coming days, but conditions would be fair. Uh, dear listener, conditions would not be fair. Yes, with the power of hindsight. <laughs> we come to you with details. The following day, a series of low-pressure wind masses had consolidated into a cyclonic storm slightly southwest of Lake Superior. This would become known as Storm Number One. The first storm ever. Ever. Yeah. Not the most clever name, but no, not yeah, really. Yeah. But it's classic. This storm would move east along the lakes through Lake Huron, gaining winds as it went. <laughs> gaining wind, like it's collecting winds Ooh. to it. Yeah. On November 9th... I'm putting together a team, says the storm, to winds of the plains. (laughs) On November 9th, a second storm had formed over the east coast near Virginia. Virginia, that's the Midwest. That's the Midwest, yeah, Yeah, okay. Storm number two, they they weren't creative people back then, pulled in warmer air from the Atlantic, causing large amounts of snow and blizzards over Ohio, dumping feet of snow over Lake Huron. Lake Huron, now battling two converging storms, would bear the brunt of the damage. For the next 24 hours, these storm systems caused hurricane-force winds for hours at a time. Measurements from the day noted wind speed of 68 miles per hour with gusts of 80 miles per hour. And those of you out there who are more familiar with kilometers, that is a different number. <laughs> You'll have to do the conversion yeah, yourself. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not here to just hold your hand. Yeah. There were also reports of waves topping 35 feet Good lord. This can't be officially corroborated because there was no way to measure wave height at the time, and the surviving crew members estimate that they could only see approximately 50 feet ahead of them at any given time because of the blizzard. 35 feet, two Priuses? No, that's uh, that's just shy of three, actually. Right? No, wait, no. 35 feet. Oh, yeah, it's Aren't just like five 50? feet more than two Priuses. Yeah. So that's that's two Priuses, and then... A shorter, a short guy. A short guy. Two Priuses and a pretty short guy. I would say some healthy, healthy distance between parked cars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Over the next few days, the storm would move, blanketing Cleveland in so much snow that residents were stranded without power for days. Mm. The storm finally dissipated over Ontario and the surrounding cities on November 11th, 1913. My cousin's birthday. Oh, shout out. Yeah. When the storm finally passed, the communities surrounding the Great Lakes were forced to contend with the destruction left behind. Actually, uh, November 9th, also a cousin's birthday. Thank you. And so we co- Thank I just you. want to make sure Thank I, you. I recognize both of uh-huh. them. Uh-huh. Great. <laughs> when the storm finally passed? Yep. When the storm finally <laughs> passed, the communities surrounding the Great Lakes were forced to contend with the destruction left behind. While on land, they had experienced power outages and snow. On the lakes, another matter entirely. 12 ships had been completely destroyed, with another 19 badly damaged, still others blown far off course and trapped in snow. As the papers began reporting, their stories began to emerge, the first ones from Lake Superior. The meteorologist, uh, nowhere to be seen. He left town (laughs) in a panic. 
And we're just going to cover a bunch of these shipwrecks now. Yeah, now we're just going to like give you a whole bunch of stuff to just chew on, think about. Let's get going. Marinate on. The SS Leefield was a Canadian steel-hulled cargo ship. She was built in Sunderland, England, for use in Newcastle. But only a year after completion, she was sold and transported to Canada. I mean, there's your problem. You've built a ship for use in Newcastle, and now you're trying to use it in Canada. Uh, in, on the Great Lakes no. in Canada? She was somewhere between 248 and 269 feet long, with a width of 35 and a half feet. That is, two Priuses and the same short guy with, with a half hat. a foot. Yeah. The big hat. He's 5'6 now. He got the surgery. He got the surgery. He got the leg lengthening surgery. Wow. She had a gross tonnage of 1,454 and frequently sailed the Great Lakes carrying coal, grain, and iron ore. Classic. The reason those numbers are estimates is that no trace of the SS Layfield has ever been found. Okay. Yeah. It's believed, based on the initial trajectory, that the ship encountered the storm near the Angus Islands in Lake Superior and possibly struck the coast on the Angus Rocks about 14 miles south of Port Arthur, Ontario. If you look at a map, this is uh, Thunder Bay. If you kind of go up up past Minnesota into Canada, it's like a, there's a bay there, and it's kind of right in there, these islands. Uh-huh. Just giving context. Yeah. No, I don't, now I know where this is. <laughs> yeah. Despite multiple searches following the storm, none of her crew nor the ship were ever found. To date, it's believed the ship sank in a particularly deep portion of Lake Superior, and its wreck may never be found. There's That's so many insane. there's so many yeah. ships down there. You're right in 5 years when it's all dried up. And, then uh, we'll probably find them, yeah. Yeah, we'll fo- we'll find them. We'll find them. We'll find them. The same night the SS Layfield went under, the Henry B Smith braved the storm as well. The B is for boat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> we assume. <laughs> we we can only infer. Yeah. The ship operated by the Acme Transit Company. Huh. Doesn't Weird when it, a real company is called Acme. Manned by coyotes? Mostly. Okay. Yeah. And not at the not in the leadership positions, obviously, but No, the leadership leadership position but is the rank obviously. and file. Yeah, the rank and file are coyotes. Largely coyotes. And, uh, they reportedly saw within the fifty feet of visibility a roadrunner, and they steered the ship towards uh what seemed to be a tunnel. <laughs> it seemed it looked like a tunnel. Uh but when they went through it it turned out to be thin paper uh right on the edge of a on the edge of a cliff, yeah. Cliff? Detonating a waterfall it, in this case. I think I think it's still a cliff. Waterfall, the, the cliffs of the sea. <laughs> the cliffs yeah. of the sea, that's right. And their payload of uh, giant round bombs and TNT uh, detonated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the Henry B. Smith set out from Marquette, Michigan, on November 9th, 1913. That was a birthday, I believe? Yeah. Okay. The Henry B. Smith was a bulk freighter with a length of 545 feet and a width of 55. It was propelled by a triple expansion steam engine powered by two boilers. So that's three Priuses and two short guys wide. Correct. Correct. Or a, a frighteningly tall man. <laughs> I don't even want to <laughs> One think about it. I don't tall, even yeah. want to think about it. The ship arrived in Marquette on the 6th, the first day the storm was spotted. They stayed docked for two days. While docked, the temperature dropped to 24 degrees. It was so cold that some of the crew reported their cargo of iron ore was freezing to the inside of the cargo containers. They had to spend an extra day in port knocking the cargo loose before setting out. 24 degrees is not that's that kinda low. not that cold. It's right? not that bad. Not that bad. You know, dude, all right. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I mean, it's cold. It's below Maybe freezing. if it's a very sudden drop. Sure. Yeah. It's not a pleasant temperature, certainly. No, it but, sucks. But that area easily gets to negative 24. I know. Or Usually less, yeah, honestly, get, in the winter. Get some socks on. Yeah. You know? 
It has also been reported that the captain had encountered a number of delays along the trip already and was anxious to make up time at the request of the shipping company. Mm -hmm. At approximately 5 p.m. on November 9th, he and his crew noticed a lull in the storm and worked quickly to finish loading and push off. In fact, they were reported to have launched without closing all of the ship's 32 hatches, hmm. an oversight that would cause even bigger problems during the storm. Okay. Yeah. Only 20 minutes after leaving the dock, they encountered the full force of the storm. <laughs> they were still visible from the shore when they attempted to turn to port and seek shelter from the waves and the wind behind a nearby peninsula. Unfortunately, the ship disappeared from view and was never seen in one piece again. Whew. Two days later, debris from the wreck was found scattered all along the coastline of the lake. Only two bodies were ever found. The second cook, H.R. Haskin, was found 50 miles west a few days later. The skeletal remains of John Gallagher, the third engineer, were found on Isle Parisien in Ontario, Canada the following year. In total, 25 people died in the wreck. That same year, a note in a bottle was retrieved from the water, claiming that the ship had broken in two, 12 miles east of Marquette. However, the note has been debunked as a oh, hoax. Probably a few, some scamps. What a shame. Don't fake something cool like that. It just mean, ruins it for everyone. Yeah, it's not fun. Or make it so believable that it can't be debunked. Yes. It's widely believed that because the ship could not close the hatches prior to the start of the storm, they filled with water potentially making the boat sink faster. That is what will happen if... Yes, if your if hatches you, are open. If your hatches are open and you fill with water, mm -hmm. you'll probably sink faster. Yeah. Unlike the SS Layfield, the Henry B. Smith was actually found. In 2013, a team of divers found her 535 feet below the surface, only a few miles off the coast of Marquette. 535 feet. Yeah, the Great Lakes are deep as hell. That's upsetting. <laughs> yeah, I know. Meanwhile, on Lake Michigan the waters were just as treacherous. Plymouth was originally built as a steamship, but was later converted into a schooner. She was 213 feet long, 32 feet wide, with a single deck. Mm -hmm. Tuberius is a very, very small guy. Yeah, yeah. Today's show is brought to you by Electric Bikes. If you think an e-bike can't handle your haul, think again. Whether you're hauling groceries, gear, or even an extra passenger, the all-new Expedition e-bike has you covered. This new cargo e-bike is designed to carry more, so you can do more and enjoy the fresh air in the meantime. I use my e-bike to go shopping, go get coffee, see friends, just ride around town. It's a great way to get around. From quick store trips to outdoor adventures, electric e-bikes will transform how you get around. Electric e-bikes also cost way less than the competition, with quality, feature-packed models financed as low as $133 per month. They include a powerful removable battery, a bright LCD display, 7-speed gearing, and 5 levels of pedal assist to power your ride. Plus, you can lower your gas costs and reduce your carbon footprint. Electric e-bikes are also customizable and adjustable to fit your lifestyle. And the best part is, once you've decided on the perfect e-bike for you, shipping is free and it's delivered to your door fully assembled. But you don't have to take my word for it. There is a growing community of over 250,000 dedicated riders on the road so far. Right now, you can check out the all-new Expedition Cargo e-bike from Lectric. Visit electricbikes.com to learn more about the Expedition Cargo e-bike and all of the other sweet models Lectric has to offer. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-Bikes.com. Go to electricebikes.com to check out the new Expedition Cargo e-bike. Hey everyone, did you know that this year is Rooster Teeth's 20th anniversary? 
Whether you've been with us for 20 years or 20 days, we couldn't have gotten here without your support. To show our appreciation, we're making 20 special anniversary episodes from some of your favorite shows to celebrate our 20-year history. The best part is they're all mystery surprise videos. Every Friday, a mystery video will be available on roosterteeth.com just for first members, and the title of the video will be revealed on Saturday and made available for everyone the following week. We love giving out surprises, but we couldn't keep everything secret for the whole 20 weeks of anniversary episodes. So to kick off our anniversary, we're going to tell you what four of the episodes will be. Get excited for a new special episode of Rage Quit, Chump, Master and Apprentice, and Camp Camp. It's all you get for now, so tune into roosterteeth.com every week to see what the other 16 episodes will be. Maybe your favorite series will return. Maybe it won't. Only one way to find out. We're incredibly thankful for your support these last 20 years and hope that you're as excited as we are to see all these awesome shows make a return. As a steamer, she was powered first by a high-pressure steam engine, but then converted to a screw propeller system. Naturally. In her time as a steamer, she traversed the Great Lakes for over 50 years through a number of storms, but not without incident. Built in 1854, the very next year, Plymouth encountered her first serious accident. She ran up on a reef in Lake Michigan near Racine, Wisconsin, where she sank almost completely. She was retrieved from the lake and put back into commission, but only for another year. Because in 1856, the clumsy old girl collided with another barge, <laughs> the Colonel E. Camp, okay. on its way to New York. The Colonel E. Camp sank within minutes, and there are no official records of how many survived, but we know it wasn't everybody. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, so... Oh, no, hang on. Three years later, the Plymouth got caught in a storm on September 2nd, 1859, which resulted in the death of at least one of her crew. <laughs> Yeesh. You're thinking we're done now. Yeah. No, 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 no. Three more years later, the Plymouth began transporting supplies for the Union Army during the Civil War until she ran ashore again, this time in Lake Erie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, it's, it's the U of boats. <laughs> oh, yes. Ha ha. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is true. I recognize I know, yeah, that. Yeah, no, I know. It's amazing I haven't, you know, racked up a higher body count. Yeah. And run aground of freshwater reefs. You are running into reefs pretty frequently. Yeah, I know, but not so bad. Yeah. I did stub my toe real bad the other night. Oh, yeah? And walked into a door, and then um, if a rake had been nearby on the ground, I can only imagine what would have happened next. Oh, smashed into your Boom. nose. Yeah. Yeah. Following a few more risky voyages, for the safety of everyone, the Plymouth was converted into a barge for the lumber trade, and later into a three-masted schooner in 1884. Despite hopes that, you know, this would make her safer, she ran aground two more times <laughs> in Lake Superior. Is it the way what she was, was happening sailed? on that ship? Was it something about her construction? I Is don't it know. Just chance. Well, I mean, it's not over yet. No. Either. No. On November 8th, 1913, she was carrying a large amount of cedar posts and being towed by the tugboat James H. Martin through Lake Michigan the on H her way to Lake Huron. Stands for hull. Yes, it does. <laughs> the captain of the tugboat, this guy, he might be a real son of a. I'm not sure if this is standard practice or what, but the captain of the tugboat realized that there was no way for both ships to survive the storm and guided the barge to Gull Island. The tugboat then cut the Plymouth free oh. and sailed out into open waters in hopes of sitting out the storm in safety. Oh my God, of mice and men ass ending. Yeah. <laughs> Just think about the rabbits, Plymouth. Yeah. When the tugboat returned two days later, the ship had completely disappeared and the body of Christopher Keenan washed up on the shore miles away, almost a week later. 
Like the SS Henry B. Smith, sometime later, they discovered a note in a bottle from Christopher Keenan. Dear wife and children, we were left up here in Lake Michigan by McKinnon, Captain James H. Martin Tug at anchor. I, this, I'm assuming this is old-timey language and not me. Yep, I guess. He went away and never said goodbye or anything to us. Lost one man yesterday. We have been out in storm 40 hours. Goodbye, dear ones. I might see you in heaven. Pray for me. Chris K. P.S. I felt so bad I had another man write for me. Goodbye forever. Why would you include that? I feel like the man writing PS. included that. Maybe, like, yeah. He's like, I'm, someone, I'm gonna get some goddamn yeah, recognition yeah. for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Uh, pray for me, Chris K. That's yeah. it. Okay. Just so you know, a really <laughs> kind guy helped him write this. Seven people are said to have died in the wreck. Mm. The Plymouth's remains were never found. A similar wreck, discovered in 1984, was originally reported to be the Plymouth, but additional investigations determined that it was likely the Erastus Corning. I mean, if we had been there, we could have cleared that up immediately. Yeah, you that's just read clearly the, you the, read the side of the Corning. ship. Yeah, it says it says it Erastus says Corning. It. Yeah, that's enough. That's enough of this lake, right? Shall I suppose we move so. On yeah, let's go to another to lake. lake Huron. Yeah, okay. because by far. Lake Huron claimed the most ships during the storm. Ooh. One of these ill-fated ships was the SS Argus, a steel-hulled freighter, 436 feet long, 50 feet wide. She set sail November 9, 1913, headed north with a load of coal, roughly 13 miles off the coast of Point O Bark, Michigan. I don't know. Uh, you did pretty look, good there know. on that first I take. I think we keep it. The ship is said to have broken in two, sinking almost instantly with all 25 of its crew perishing. Now... These ships so often break into yeah. and then both sink. They should design them in such a way that they can account for a, a Herbie the Love Bug-esque split down the oh, center. yeah, where it can just split. They can both sail to safety. And well, then I it, think the problem is you have to split in the middle because that's where they split. They don't split directly down the center like, the, like Herbie the Love Bug. Might. Well, that's what I'm saying. You build it in such a way that it does split that way. But that wouldn't help. Then it would just still break the other way and it would sink. No, because it's doing a Herbie the Love Bug. Because it, it's fine, because of the water displacement. Was Herbie, did, it, did Herbie have the soul of a man? Or what happened? Or was it purely? Well, it was in love with. We can't do this. Love we bug. cannot do this. It was also this. <laughs> we must not do this. If you know why Herbie Stop the Love it. Bug is Stop. the way it is, Stop. get at us on social. Pieces of the wreckage were found by a local doctor along the Ontario shoreline weeks later. It was also discovered that the SS Hydrus, the SS Argus's sister ship, had sunk in the storm. Whoa. Yeah. That same doctor also found pieces of the SS John A. McGean, whose full wreckage was found in 1985. Whoa. The remains revealed that she had been badly damaged by a large wave, causing her to sink rapidly. But this doctor just making discoveries. Also, Bizarre. John A. McGean, A stands for aft. Yes, it does. Back to the Argus. Her remains were discovered in 1972, by a diver named Dick Race. Come on. I know. I know. <laughs> okay. He discovered that the wreck lies upside down, about 250 feet underwater. Might Similar as well to just be a diver named Pissing Contest. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> Similar to the SS Argus, the Isaac M. Scott Mast. Yep. Set out with a load of coal, headed for Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She was spotted by another ship as she headed directly into the storm. Oh, man. I know. After the storm, the Isaac M. Scott was listed as missing until the body of its captain washed ashore in Ontario, still wearing his life preserver. 
One of her lifeboats was found weeks later, but all 28 crew members are believed to have perished in the wreck. The, Although, the Great Lakes are ruthless. I will say, yeah, seems like sometimes people are presumed dead, and they just went on to live a full life, as we'll sort of find out how easy that was to do in oh. a, at the end of this. Okay. Uh, not a full life in this case, but you could do that. You could just disappear until like 1950. Yeah, you could just kind of resurface. Yeah. And even then- As like, a different guy. There was still no DNA, uh, right. really. So yeah. you can get away with a lot of stuff. Yeah. The Isaac M. Scott's remains were discovered in 1976, about six miles from North Point, Michigan, in what is now known as the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary and Underwater Preserve. Cool. Yeah. The U.S. lightship Buffalo was one of the smallest ships destroyed in the storm. She had a length of 95.2, with a width of 21 feet and a tonnage of only 187. That is quite small. Yeah. She was equipped with a cast iron propeller and powered by what else but a high-pressure boiler steam engine. Natch. The Buffalo was also one of the few ships to attempt the radical strategy of simply staying put during the storm. Hunker down. It was unsuccessful. Oh. Yeah. It was a failure. <laughs> oh, okay. Not much did work, though, in their defense, so. She stayed at her assigned station in coordinates and sank with all six of her crew aboard. I'm imagining her just like, Doo, going yeah. straight down. But hang on. It's not over for her yet. Really? In 1916, she was raised using pontoon boats and refurbished just in time to serve in World War I. Huh. She continued to serve until 1936 when she was decommissioned. That's cool. They just kind of kept her on ice for yeah. like three years. See, pontoon boats makes me think about just like crushing beers out on the lakes in a pontoon. Yeah. But I feel like it's probably not the same type of pontoon boat. I mean, I'm sure there was some crushing of brews. Because if yeah. you're on the lake on a pontoon boat, it doesn't matter how many, you know, it doesn't matter how many, you know, cast iron propeller driven uh, ships mm -hmm. needed to be raised. You're going to have a couple. Yeah. The initial plan was for her to serve as a VFW ship at a post in Massachusetts, but alas, the lightship Buffalo was destroyed by arsonists only a few months later. Oh my God. I'd, yeah. All right. What's our next ship, Patrick? Well, it's called, now to look at it, you would think it's the SS Regina, but we will be going with the horrendous Canadian pronunciation of SS Regina. Yes. We have written a strongly worded letter to uh, the Our Trudeau administration, yep. and we are working on getting that changed. Yes. The SS Regina was a steel-hulled cargo ship, built in Scotland and registered for transportation of cargo and passengers between the UK and Europe. She was eventually sold to a Canadian company who renamed her the SS Regina after Regina, Saskatchewan. She was 249 feet long with a width of 42 feet and six inches. Hmm. She had a single-screw, triple-expansion steam engine powered by two scotch boilers. Why are you doing a car commercial, read? Because that's what it sounds like. Okay. I wish we got to ask for uh, her to include torque. Yeah, this in the is next, significantly yeah, people are lacking wondering. in torque. Yeah. Because if we want the J.D. Power and Associates Award for Safety, we're going to have to read off start adding torque. torque. <laughs> Regina left port on November 9th from Point Edward, Ontario on Lake Huron. The SS Regina had 10 planned stops on her voyage, because of all that, the cargo was varied and heavy. She carried eight railroad cars full of canned food, 140 tons of baled hay, and strapped to the upper deck was a shipment of large metal pipes designed for sewer and gas systems. All of this to say, she was at max capacity. This is a full girl. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Me last night after I had all those tacos. Mm-hmm. Okay. Upon encountering the storm, the captain of the SS Regina initially attempted to find a safe harbor to wait it out. However, 
they were too far from any accessible port. He made the choice instead to drop anchor approximately seven miles offshore from Lexington, Michigan. As the storm got worse, the captain lowered the lifeboats and ordered all the crew to abandon ship. No sooner had the lifeboats been lowered that some of their heavier cargo broke free, altering the balance of the ship. I've seen this a thousand times. Capsized and sank within minutes. Yeesh. Strap your cargo down as tight as possible. Mm. That's our second piece of advice. After and stay on land. Don't yeah. stay in your cabin. Well, that's number one is stay on land. Stay on land, stay yeah. in your cabin, strap down your cargo. Yeah. A capsized lifeboat and 12 bodies washed ashore in Ontario a few weeks later. It is believed that there were no survivors of the SS Regina. Many wondered why the captain had ordered the crew to abandon ship when he did. They were only seven miles out from Lexington. It was possible that they could have made port. Still would have been difficult, but it's possible. No, it could happen. It's within the realm of things Good that captain, could have happened. Anything yeah. can happen. Yeah. However, once the wreck was found, it was discovered that the SS Regina had a large hole near one of the cargo holds and several dents. See, that's, no, that's not good. Not in a boat. No. The belief is that she had run aground while searching for a safe harbor and was actively sinking when the lifeboats were lowered. The holes near the cargo hold, plus the already overloaded cargo, meant the ship sank in the water even faster. Despite being disproven years later, Many at the time believed the SS Regina may have collected with the SS Charles S. Price. You gonna say what the S stands for? I was for? gonna say it stands for ship. Easy one. Yeah. Softball. Slam dunk. Yeah, right across the plate. Uh, and they thought this was the source of the hull damage. But once the SS Charles S. Price was discovered without similar damage and considerably farther away, this theory was abandoned. Interesting. A serial boat destroyer. Yeah. Speaking of the SS Charles S. Price... She was a steel-hulled steamship designed for transporting cargo across the lakes. Yes, yeah, she was. She was one of the newer ships, and also one of the largest ships lost during the storm. At 524 feet in length and 54 feet wide, she was one of the largest boats on the water that day. It's unclear how the Charles S. Price sank during the storm, as none of her 28 crew members survived, but the wreck was one of the first to be found. The wreck of uh, was first, first among many... <laughs> The Charles S. Price was discovered November 10th, 1913. However, they initially struggled to identify the ship. She was upside down and had been thrust so hard against the base of the lake where she had run aground that much of the ship was buried in the mud floor. It was impossible to verify the length of the vessel. That's how I sleep. <laughs> buried in the <laughs> Just, I, I hit. You have a pot I have filled a, with I have a pot filled uh, with soil. mud and I hit it so fast and yep. so hard. First attempts to identify it were based on debris. They had found a number of bodies nearby wearing life vests from the SS Regina, the previous ship we just talked about. Oh yeah, I remember that. Which led to the wreck being misidentified. Okay. It's fair enough. Yeah, I mean, the bodies are nearby. Yeah. These say this, maybe this is that ship. Yeah. It's not entirely clear what... Oh. It's not entirely clear how crew members from the SS Charles S. Price ended up wearing Regina life vests. One theory is that the Regina had already sunk, and they found the life vest floating in the water and put them on. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you want the simplest explanation, maybe some of the remains were just crew members of the Regina. Just kind of floated, floated down or, I don't yeah. A few weeks later, divers positively identified the wreck as the Charles S. Price and began attempts to salvage her. They drilled a hole in the aft hull so divers could swim down into the ship to repair multiple dents and holes. However, after only a few weeks working on the salvage effort, it was deemed too costly to continue. Another salvage company bought the contract, but they too were unable to remove the ship from where it was wedged in the bottom of the lake. Yeah. You want another one? 
I would like another one. Let's talk about another ship. Yeah, okay. The SS James Carruthers. The Jim Carruthers. A Canadian freighter. Mm-hmm. Built only weeks before the storm. <laughs> Yikes. Fresh off the lot. Oh, hey, yeah. Listen, don't invest in cargo freighters. They depreciate as soon as you drive them Once off. Once you drive them off, yeah. With a gross tonnage of 7,862. A length of 550 feet and a width of 58 feet. She was powered by a triple expansion steam engine and carried a crew at 22. The SS James Carruthers was probably the biggest ship on the lake that day. I will be buying one and financing at 16% APR. Beautiful. That's a good rate. Uh, no, no, it's not. <laughs> Don't buy a car with that rate. <laughs> On November 6th, the ship loaded up 375,000 bushels of wheat headed for Midland, Ontario. If you're curious, one bushel of wheat can make approximately 90 loaves of bread. Huh. Yeah. Which means the ship was capable of producing almost 34 million loaves of bread had they ever reached their destination. Yeah. And then, like, Got to a, a, mill, a mill, a bakery, yeah. someone skilled enough. A lot of process. You know, a proving drawer. Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of, yeah, proving drawer. They planned to travel the lake with another ship, the J.H. Sheetle, and both opted to stay a little longer in port because the paint in some of the cabins was still tacky and had not dried yet. <laughs> Run, the captain running his finger along it and tasting it, going, hmm. Still it's tacky. tacky. By the morning of November 8th, it looked as if the storm had largely blown over. But this was storm number one, and as you may the remember, there's a second one coming. Which is called... Storm number two. That's right. Both ships made their way down the river. They stopped to refuel at the mouth of the lake, and the Carruthers pulled out ahead of its companionship, only to be hit by the full force of storm number two. I'm gonna go first. Once I'm safely in the waterfall... <laughs> yeah. The J.H. Sheetal, that companionship, mm -hmm. was able to see her from the deck for only a few minutes before the Carruthers turned to port and out of view, never to be seen again. Hot dog. Yep. The Tuesday after the storm, November 11th, 1913, rescue teams had found a number of unidentified bodies believed to be the crew of the Carruthers. A man named Thomas Thompson of Hamilton, Ontario, arrived to try and identify his son among the bodies. Thompson found a body with all of the matching features, the same facial hair, a missing tooth, similar scars, a tattoo of his initials on his left forearm, and a birth condition in which his second and third toes were connected. Uh, okay. He took possession of the body, notified his family, held a funeral, buried the body, and posted yeah. an obituary in the newspaper. And again, this man, this man is named Thomas Thompson. Correct. Right, okay. Which is how his very alive son, John Thompson, Oh. Read about his own death in the newspaper. So there was just another guy on this ship. With connected with toes. With matching features, connecting toes, the same facial hair, same, same missing teeth, same scars, and same initials tattooed on the same forearm. Do you think maybe Thomas Thompson just didn't know that much about his son? That could also possibly That's be my true. guess. Yeah, yeah. He probably hadn't seen him in 20 years. Probably not. I mean, if his son had gone out sailing yeah. for work. Yeah, John, the son, had decided to just take some time off and had not boarded the Carruthers on its final voyage. Huh. He was just doing, he was taking me time. He was doing him. He was doing him. You'd think that upon finding out your family had the wrong body, one might immediately telegraph or write a letter to let them know that you were not in fact dead. Yeah. Not so for John Thompson. Okay. Yeah. John decided that he wanted to tell him in person. So he took a leisurely train trip stopping along the way to visit friends who all thought he was dead. 
Upon arriving in Hamilton, he wandered around town freaking people out until a family friend yelled at him to return home. That's awesome. Insane. That's, that's the Completely dream, though. insane. Because you want, you want to be present at your own funeral, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like a of Tom course. and Huck situation. Exactly. I, I I mean, I just like, yeah, that sounds that sounds baller. I want to hear, you know, I'm, I'm alive. Yeah. So finally, John did go to his family's house, only to walk in on his own wake. <laughs> Initially, they were overjoyed to find out he was alive. I imagine at first a little spooked. Yeah. A little scared, I mean, because right? he came in clanking all those chains. Yeah, and, and, the ones and he howling. forged in life. Yes, that's yeah. right. <laughs> but then they were kind of frustrated that they had, you know, just paid all the funeral expenses for a complete stranger. <laughs> That's something my mom would be frustrated about if I came yeah. home and I was like, I'm alive, Ebenezer! Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, then why, who the hell did I just pay to bury? Yeah. The body claimed by Mr. Thompson remains unidentified to this day, but is buried with the other sailors identified from the Carruthers. Hey, I mean, that's that's as honorable a uh, burial as he could have hoped for, right? Some yeah. stranger coming, just being yeah, like, I'm yeah. going to let you to rest. Yeah. I'm going to make sure that you're taken care of in your passage to the other side. Yeah. I will I will carry you across the river sticks. <laughs> and that's the Great Lakes Storm of 1913. Wow. That is tremendous. Yeah. It's a shame that the whole ordeal is overshadowed now by two cousins' birthdays. I know. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? Hey, you know what? What? That's the way the world goes. Sorry. And that's the way it goes. <laughs> Can I give you a foghorn? Yeah. Yeah. The last foghorn of the season? Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I mean, you should take this one. You you think so? Yeah. Well, you give me one down. <laughs> Sorry, I got something. I got to clear the spit valve. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Jericho Wolf Labunt. Okay. Now this is uh this is the man of the hour. Mm-hmm. Not this hour. This happened at the beginning of February. Okay. Uh, over a month ago at sure. the time of recording. But yep. there has been uh so much uh honorable uh sea related incidents worth mentioning. So many. But now let's talk about Jericho. So uh Jericho's story doesn't begin but actually ends with a Coast Guard training mission. So the Coast Guard were training uh, not far from Astoria in Oregon when mm-hmm. they received a distress call from a patrol craft called the Sandpiper, and it was out in uh, rough, rough waters. So uh, if Astoria sounds familiar, that's where— it's from Kindergarten Cop. That's because—is it really? Yeah, but I think that's a different Astoria. There's probably one in New I think England. That's a California Astoria. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Love it. Folks, get us in the chat. Let us know which Astoria you're the most, chat. Fam- you're yeah. most familiar with. <laughs> Let us know in the chat. In the live, the live <laughs> chat, the podcast comment section. I call the chat. Listen, we, we're going we're gonna to speed through this one because we had a long episode today. So I'm going to just tell you a little bit. If if Astoria sounds familiar, no, it's because not because of Kindergarten Cop. Okay. You're looking that up now? I'm just, don't worry about it. I can tell. I know you're looking it, I'm up. Not looking it up. That's fine. I'm going to keep going. That is where the Goonies house is. Yeah, famously, you can go visit it. Uh, there's a, there's a park nearby. I've been actually on a similar stormy day. Oh, um, and so the sandpiper, uh, you know, the, like a small yacht was being driven by Labonte. He was not the owner of said vessel. Really? Yeah, he actually stole it. But days before, okay. in a strange turn of events, 
There is video of him leaving a dead fish on the stoop of the Goonies' house. Okay. Uh, some parts, some uh, some threads have reported it as a pile of stinking fish. Uh, Good. It's a hooded figure Normal. that kind of walks up the drive, uh, leaves I, I it there, this video, yeah. and bounces. Uh, he reportedly attempted to later come back and retrieve the fish, but was, quote, scared off. What? <laughs> <laughs> don't, I don't know. Yeah, so then a few days okay. later, he stole the boat and immediately found himself in extremely rough seas when he called for rescue. Oh, good Lord. And it was a successful rescue. It's yeah. kind of crazy. There's video from a helicopter of someone swimming out. He had to be rescued from the water because they the, the boat is just moving around like crazy. It's like a fishing boat or something, I think, right? Like It's, it's yeah. sort of like a mid-size. Like it's, it's like uh, something you... You could own as just like a regular yes. person. I think it's a leisure, but it's a little bigger than like and a, a little normal. bit nicer. I think yeah, in some yeah. places, some outlets called it a yacht. I, I think it's yacht not, is. Like I wouldn't a, call it a yacht. Well, but yeah, yeah, but I've had some people tell me like, we're going out on a yacht, and it's more like this kind of boat, yeah. which is like yeah, yeah. you know you can go under it, and it's got a PS3 down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. There's a PS3. There's in that definitely boat. a PS3 yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. obviously, yeah. they've got Mafia too, or Expo- <laughs> maybe a 360, depending on their loyalties and what was cheaper. Exactly, at the time. but it is yeah. an arcade version that has I think 32 gigs of memory. Yeah, not it's even. Not good for Actually, it's just got some flash memory. But there's only like two games on it anyway, so and you're never going to be on Wi-Fi to download anything because you're on a boat. And then you can bring a thumb drive that. You just format a thumb drive and you keep your games on that. Oh, that's what I did. Oh, okay, that was on land. So it could be totally different. Gotcha, gotcha. Anyway, uh, they rescued the guy, the god Jericho, uh, and this actually all took place at the mouth. of He the might Columbia be a monster, River. so I'm not. I'm not saying the god. Well, no, uh, yeah, no, I mean he it. might be a monster. So it's too late for you to take it's, it back. Okay, but. well he's a monster, probably. The god. I don't know well, that. God, yeah, have you ever read the Old Testament? <laughs> yeah. What? Monsters can be gods. <laughs> What? And vice versa. I don't know. What the hell stop. are you talking about? <laughs> Digging myself deeper in my pot of mud. I just want to say that um, this took place in the graveyard of the Pacific. These are the same waters that claim yeah, to be yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, the, the proud history of uh, vessels being destroyed in these waters carrying on today with Jericho Wolf Labonte. So uh, it turns out he is a wanted Canadian fugitive. Um, he's wanted. Really? Uh, yeah, he's a Victorian guy. He's from uh, the BC. He's from BC. Yeah, he's wanted yeah. for criminal harassment, mischief, and failure to comply with officers. Uh, but um, our neighbors to the north do not want him back. I wouldn't either. You know what? I am going to call this a yacht. I'm looking at it now. It looks nothing like a fishing vessel. It's not a fishing vessel. I don't think. I think it is. That's what I thought it was from the first. There's clips of it though getting hit by waves, and it's almost like fully horizontal. Yeah, it's these seas are rough. Yeah. Um, and I can only hope he's like God. I wish I'd been able to get that fish back from the Goonies' house. I know. What the hell was that? What is that? He got scared off by somebody there. Uh, anyway, yeah, they decided that those charges are not enough to extradite him. Okay. So he is now still in the U.S., as far as I know, facing charges for first-degree theft, endangering another person, unauthorized use of a vehicle, and second-degree criminal mischief. <laughs> I assume that's the fish. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Which yeah. will be the bulk of his sentencing, I think. Fish-related. So, fish crime. Yeah, let's let's hope that, you know, while he's, you know, in detention, wherever he may be, that someone can get those mischief, fishchief Mischief Fischief back to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's our season of Ship Hits the Fan. Ending high energy. Yeah. Folks, I gotta say, keep those bones bleached. That's right. And I will also say that the show is written by Paige Wesley. It's mm-hmm. edited by Kelly Reynolds with art by Stevie Jude. Yep. I'm Charlotte Avery. I, I'm Patrick. Just Patrick. Just Patrick. 
Thanks, everybody. Bones. <laughs> Bleaching. Bleaching.